right, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Honest Offense. Today, I'm honored to be joined by Professor Jason Kilborn. Professor Kilborn teaches at the University of Illinois Chicago School of Law. He's a leading authority on the comparative law and policy of individual insolvency. Professor Kilborn also teaches civil procedure, among other classes. None of this might sound like controversial subject matter, but he did find himself in the middle of a firestorm this year over one of his exam questions. Professor Kilborn, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So before we get into the controversy, I, I want to just learn a little bit about your background. Can you tell me why you got interested in law and, and then in teaching? Well, to try to make a long story somewhat shorter, my undergraduate, majors, my, my undergraduate majors were French and Russian. And I sort of was thinking, what does one do with an undergraduate major in, you know, two world languages, but, you know, relatively obscure, uh, particularly the Russian side. And I thought, you know, I would love to be able to use language in a way that really impacts the world. Uh, and so I thought, well, why not go into law? Uh, but so I did. Uh, and I loved it. I loved it primarily because of the language aspect. Law is really nothing other than just a new way of using language. Uh, my, my students would tell you the, the classes I teach involve particularly uh, you know, un, un, uh, unfamiliar language. So it very much is like learning a, a foreign language. But another thing about my undergraduate, I went to school at the University of Northern Iowa, which has historically been Iowa's teacher's college. And I went there with that in mind. I mean, I, I love teaching. I love helping people to understand difficult things. I love improving people's lives and then knowing that they will improve 30 other people's lives in turn. It's just a great way to sort of exponentially impact, increase one's impact. And so I always had that teaching in the back of my mind. Um, and so relatively quickly after I started practicing law, while I enjoyed that, I just kept thinking about I would really love to teach this in a way that, again, helps people to be more effective lawyers and therefore to help so many more people. And so I eventually did. I transitioned back into teaching and I've been doing it very happily for 21 years. Um, I'm still pretty happy. <laughs> and, and hopefully once all this begins to subside, then I will uh, go back to my very happy self. And your primary interest and in what you practice was bankruptcy law? Yeah. Well, so to, to be in the kind of a big firm where I was, you have to specialize in large corporate reorganization. That's what I did. I was more or less on the litigation side of the team, you know, presenting things to the bankruptcy court, liaising with the business people to understand how can we describe your business to get what we need out of the bankruptcy reorganization process. But yeah, that's, that's what I did in practice. What attracted you to that practice area specifically? That's a really interesting question. Uh, you know, I, I don't quite know. And I've actually thought many times throughout my academic career in particular, what is it about bankruptcy that's so attracted and still does attract me? I mean, I have an uncommon passion for what I do, uh, particularly in the academy, but even then, you know, in, in practice. And it's hard to say. Um, I can tell you uh, you know, not to diss on my friends who are still, you know, business lawyers and business people, but I actually started doing securities law. And so my, my big idea was, you know, I want to make money flow through the securities markets from the United States to Russia. And that all sounded very good. But when I did my summer internship and, you know, when I started practicing as a, as a lawyer very, very early on, I quickly realized that everything that my securities lawyer partner people were assigning me could easily be accomplished by, you know, a relatively sharp fifth grader with a pencil. Uh, and I thought I didn't spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in several years of my life to have this be <laughs> the, the, what I do. 
And so I really started looking for, you know, is there a practice area that allows me to really delve into the law and use the law in combination with a knowledge of sophisticated business practices to really influence people's lives? And so it was really between tax and bankruptcy. Because tax is basically all about, you know, making the law sort of function in a way, you know, that, that fits onto facts in a way that, you know, achieves people's business objectives. And, you know, at the time, it's so ironic. I was just talking to my wife about this the other day. I decided not to go into tax law because I decided that my friends who were doing tax spent too much time reading things. Uh, you know, and I didn't feel like I wanted to do that much research. Well, now, 20 years later, I mean, I spend, you know, 80% of my time just researching new things and reading all day long. So <laughs> that's pretty funny. But yeah, I, I don't know what so enthuses me about bankruptcy practice. But particularly now that I've transitioned in academic life to individual and small business bankruptcy, I mean, it just has such tremendous potential to 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 lift people's spirits and to, to take away just an enormous burden that so many people around the world are carrying. And I've been very, very fortunate to have hooked up with some organizations that have made my work, um, I think, very salutarily influential in the world. It's nice. You know, it's funny. I always say you can pass law school with a 10th grade education as long as you're willing to just put the time in. You reduced it to fifth grade. So <laughs> maybe a smart fifth grader. But um, it, it's funny. I, I've I talk to so many people who do have passions and they're so passionate about their work. And you assume that all of those people have this innate passion to do what they're doing, that they found it when they were 10 years old and they always knew that's what they wanted to do. And there are those types of people. But what, what I found in talking to people, there's a lot of people who do say, I, I kind of just fell into this and I, I fell in love with it as I was exploring other things. So there are so many paths that you can take to success. It's interesting to hear that. Absolutely. So, so you started teaching and you've, you were teaching this civil procedure class. And I believe the class that, that this exam came up in was civil procedure two. So was that an yeah. advanced level class? You weren't teaching first year students? No. So that's a good point. They, they were not only not high schoolers, not only not college students, <laughs> they're graduate students. And they were not only graduate students, but law students. And they were not only law students, but second year at least law students, many of whom I think were actually even maybe in their third year. My school divides civil procedure into two three-hour courses. The first is the introductory sort of constitutional uh, civil procedure, how the courts have power over people, and CIPRO 2 is the rules, how, the, how things work, right? And, and, and this is worth emphasizing. CIPRO 2 is about what does a lawyer do? People get so used to thinking about just sort of letting law school wash over them. I'm just going to listen to the professor and sort of, you know, try to absorb her thoughts. You know, and, and the fact of the matter is you're not allowed to do that anymore in, in most of my classes. I teach very hands-on, what do you do when you get an assignment like this kinds of classes. And CIPRO 2 is that way par excellence. Because as I say, you know, to my students in that class, lots of smart business people have a pretty good idea of how business law, even commercial law, maybe even bankruptcy law works. Virtually no business person has any idea how civil procedure works, right? They don't have any reason to care. This is the law that makes you a lawyer like no other area of the law. And it really is what distinguishes lawyers from every other member of educated society. You're the ones who know not how to think about this. Thinking is for con law. You know how to do Someone says, I need, I need this objective accomplished. I need you to get in there, get dirty, and get something done. And so I really try to focus my class on the kinds of dirty situations in which lawyers find themselves trying to get something done 
despite all of the emotional turmoil going on all over the place and the uncertainty of it all. Well, and that's great because such a critique that people have of law school is that it's it's taught by academics. It's taught by people who never practice law, and they're, they're teaching you the academic side of law when really 95% plus of students, probably 99 plus percent of students, aren't going to be academics. They're going to be law practitioners. And yeah. so to have a course like that where you're actually learning what a lawyer does, it's actually quite rare for people who don't realize it's quite rare to have a, a course like that in law school. And and again, just for the, the non-legal audience, civil procedure is a class that every first year law student across the country takes. It's really a required class, I believe nationally. And so like, like you said, you're teaching the civil procedure two class to second year law students. So they are all at least, like you said, they have undergraduate degrees. Some of them worked before going to law school. They went through the first year of law school. So they're at least 23 years old at the point that they're taking your class. Yeah. Uh, so, so tell me about this. Let's talk about the exam itself. And can you explain to, again, to a non-legal audience what these hypothetical exams are and, and the purpose for them? So again, I, I think it's worth distinguishing my classes, and maybe it's fair to say my school's approach to the law from what you might have seen in a, you know, a, a movie like The Paper Chase or something like that. I mean, there certainly are still professors, many of them, particularly in highbrow subjects like constitutional law, for example, where the exam may well be some sort of, you know, pontificate on the following topic, you know, what would the world have been like had Marbury versus Madison been decided the other way or something like that? I, I can't do that. Uh, so, so maybe people at Harvard uh, or Yale have the luxury of, you know, sending out into the class whatever they want and putting whatever letter or non-letter they want in their students and figuring they'll be fine. I don't have that luxury. My students... And one of the reasons why I really value being at the school where I am is I feel like my students really need me. I really am helping them in a very real way to sort of be introduced to what it means to be a lawyer, what it means to stand in front of a client and be responsible for his or her matters. I really need, as I said recently in another interview, to put a scalpel in the hands of a first-year medical student or how, whenever one grabs a scalpel in medical school, and I say, you got to start cutting. You know, we, we can't have an exam where you sort of describe the process of cutting to me. You need to pick up the scalpel and go, where do you make the incision and how long should it be? You know, and so on my exams in particular, in my classes, these are not cerebral topics where it's like, what do you think about X? It is a client walks into your office and tells you the following sad story. What do you do? And the answer to that question is going to be the difference between your client, you know, winning or losing. If it's the plaintiff, you may well leave that person with no possibility of ever seeking redress for a horrible injury. And if it's in a criminal case, of course, you may well, you know, deprive that person, frankly, of his or her liberty or maybe even his or her life. I mean, it's just the stakes could hardly be higher. Um, thank goodness I don't have to deal with the criminal side, but even on the civil side, I mean, people have suffered tremendously and si the, the civil court process is a place where lots of people in our society look to get the only thing that will feel like redress to them. And it's, and it's, and it's, it's extremely complicated. I mean, it, you know, it, it isn't three-dimensional chess, but it's complicated. Uh, and and it, it is a place where people are finally confronted with the answer not being it depends. The answer in my class is rule 15 C1 little 2 I B. <laughs> you know, there's an answer. And you either know it or you don't. And you can either figure out which facts implicate which sub-sub-subsection of the rule, or you can't. 
And again, if you can't, you're going to deprive your client of the, the thing that she or he has coming. Um, and, and that's not what we want for anybody. Our, our students really do need to be able to get out there, sell themselves in a very aggressive way to a world that's going to be fairly skeptical of who they are and what they have to offer and be like, I know how to do what your clients need us to do. And they have to be able to say that credibly. So in order to make sure that, that we're sending out people like that into the world, I have to make sure that they know how to do what they need to do. And the only way to do that is to ask them questions and put them in hypothetical situations where, as I said, I go, client comes in your office uh, and says, X, what do you do? You know, and so th these scenarios are designed to, you know, to sort of parachute the student into a situation. You know, they have to think about the situation, think about the law, think about how the facts and the law come together and then come to a solution. The solution may well not be cut and dry. It may, it may well be eventually that, you know, the answer is, well, it's not entirely clear or maybe this way, maybe that way. But I need to see that you can move in at least the right direction when I give you a, you know, not overly complex hypothetical. But and again, this is worth emphasizing a hypothetical that isn't hokey and silly. I think one of the great mistakes that law professors in particular make is trying to be either, you know, humorous or clever in making stupid, silly, hypothetical facts that don't really resonate with what the world looks like. If I can give you a fact scenario where you're like, wow, yeah, you know, I can imagine a client like that coming in. Gosh, this is an important matter for this person. I need to take this seriously. That's how I want my student to feel. And I want her to feel that pressure of what do I do? This person's relying on me. I have to get out of the passenger seat and into the driver's seat for perhaps the first time in my life. This is a really disorienting feeling, I think, for many of our students. And with all of the other disorienting feelings that people were experiencing around about December, you know, 2020, uh, you know, I'm not terribly surprised that there was, you know, some manner of whatever going on. I'm, I am terribly surprised at how far it's gone and how my administration has reacted, but we can get into that if you like. Absolutely. So like you said, civil procedure is very, you know, rule based. So it just naturally lends itself to being less ethereal or academic than other subjects. And similar, you know, yeah. there's other courses like tax law that are similarly very rule based. And yes. then you have, like you said, constitutional law tends to be more, more academic, more, more broader, uh, more broad in, in the way you can think about these issues. But do you still find yourself, are you rare even among civil procedure professors in terms of how you think about this practically? Or, or is that generally how civil procedure courses are, are run? You know, it's, I have to honestly say it's hard to say. Uh, you know, w even within the school, we civil procedure professors do talk to each other periodically. But, you know, there, there sort of is this standoffishness among us. Like, you kind of stay in your garden and I'll kind of stay over here. And, and, and I'll admire what I've heard others say about your garden, but I'm not really going to be throwing stones at you and I don't want you throwing them at me. I mean, we're all, we kind of all have this, you know, you stay over there and I'll stay over here kind of mentality. So I don't really have a great idea of what other professors are doing on, in their classes, frankly, much less on their exams. But, you know, from what I've heard from other people, from the examinations that I've seen as a member of promotion and tenure committees and whatnot, I do think that at my school, I am probably more or less, you know, run of the mill in terms of that's how I approach the subject matter. I do think that I, given 
other aspects of my background and maybe a little bit more hard hitting than others might be, you know, for many years, I was a lecturer for Barbary, this company that prepares people to take this big, horrible bar examination that's the big, you know, threshold between you and actually becoming a lawyer. And that that exam is like it's like a horrific two day full day long like end of semester exam. <laughs> it's it's very very intense, and so I I have for the past you know for about the first seventeen ish years of my career took a really 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 uh, you know deep interest in how are those questions pitched? What do the bar examiners want my students to be prepared to show that they know, and how do I prepare them to do that? So. You know, while I don't just cut and paste bar exam questions onto my exam, I do use those bar exam questions, at least their format, as a guide. And so, you know, while I have heard some of my colleagues saying, you know, sometimes I'll have a question like, you know, what's summary judgment? I'm thinking to myself, that's never going to appear in the bar, right? I don't understand why you would even pose such a question. Put a question on there that, that demonstrates that the student knows what summary judgment is by applying the rule. So, I mean, I really make an effort to combine my sort of bar exam past and, and my, you know, we need to prepare these people to be lawyers present. And by the way, the idea that, well, even though I don't lecture for Barbara any longer, my students still need to pass a bar exam. And, you know, one of the things that I've discovered over the years is there's nothing that gets the class's attention more rapidly than mentioning this question is based on an old bar exam question. And this is what you're going to face a year and a half from now when you take that exam, right? People are like, oh, okay, well, you know, now I pay attention. So, you know, I, I, I really do, I think, make what is fair to evaluate as a sort of special effort to make my exams realistic, reflective of the bar exam, which people are going to have to deal with. And, you know, really, again, reflective of what lawyers really will encounter, both in becoming a lawyer and in being one. And again, I just I have to point out how unique that way of thinking is because, like you said, students spend three years and a hundred thousand dollars plus on law school, and then to actually be able to be a lawyer, you have to pass this bar exam. Yep. And most students take the whole summer off after they graduate law school to study for this bar exam and pass it because then you don't want to have to have study for it again and have to retake it months later. They only offer it twice a year when you're already working, and and now you have this extra pressure. I already failed it once. And so it, it's so vital to students that they pass exams. So to have a professor who's thinking about that, uh, it, you, it's a rare case. It, it really is. So I, I have to think your students appreciate that you have this way of thinking in, in a practical way that, again, it's, it's jarring relative to your other courses because, again, most of those other courses are taught in an academic fashion. And in a lot of ways, those academic courses are more fun because you just can free, you can just have these discussions and these debates and and you don't, you're not bogged down by real world issues. It's, it's a little more philosophical, uh, but, but these more practical classes, a more practical way of thinking about things are so much more relevant to what your life's going to be like for the next 30, 40 years as, as a lawyer. I so, hope. Yeah. So, all right. So let's talk about this, this specific test question that's, that's caused all the controversy. I believe you've, you said that you've offered this question for years. This, this has been on your exams for a long time now. This isn't this this past year wasn't the first time that you've used this question on a test. No, yeah. I so when my dean very first brought this up to me, like four days before Christmas, um, I was at first confused. Like, so I'm not exactly sure what the problem is. And incidentally, I to this day don't really understand what anyone regards the problem being. <laughs> we can talk about that too. Um, but, but so one of the reasons I was confused is because I have used that very question almost verbatim. I mean, I've tweaked the language a bit over the years for literally the past 12 administrations of this exam. 
over about the past 10 years. And I actually went back right after the dean had spoken to me and I actually looked it up. And I told her, I've administered this very question, usually in multiple choice format, which is why I've reused it because we don't release multiple choice. I've reused this question 12 times. And, you know, not only has no one ever said anything about it, but people have actually sort of, you know, either directly or indirectly thanked me for the kinds of things that you were saying a minute ago. Like, thank you for putting realistic hypothetical facts that really do accentuate the struggles that still face, you know, people of color in the in the professional world and that still confront people of color in, you know, the in litigating about the professional world. And thank you for recognizing that instances of people actually being overtly and egregiously, you know, racist still exist. This is still a thing and we still need to learn how to deal with this. And again, thank you for like pointing out how the law prevents somebody from getting around. I mean, that all of that stuff was my intention in putting the question on there to begin with. Like, I, I, I don't understand what it's like to be in that situation because how could I? But I acknowledge that there are people who still face that. And I'm here to tell you my class is where you get to tell somebody like that, I'm here for you. I am the one who can save you, and I'm the one who can prevent the other side from burying this information that no one, of course, wants to you know, be out in the open. I'm the one who can bring it out in the open. And this is the only mechanism in our society that allows that stuff to be brought out in the open. So, yeah, I've used that question for years, not only, again, you know, without any objection, but, again, people have been very receptive to the sort of the approach of recognizing and acknowledging that this is one of the most important roles the law has to play today. And anyone who's watching or listening now who doesn't know the story already is yelling, what was the question? What yeah, what's the deal? Was, yeah, so so can you explain what the question was? Well, I mean, if you're interested at all, incidentally, I can tell you, if you Google Jason Kilborn UIC, you'll find the question and about 36 internet commentaries on it instantly. <laughs> I, 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 this really has captivated the attention of, of lots of legal commentators. I, I believe and hope because they're like, what? <laughs> he got in trouble for what? What are these people? I, I don't understand what the problem is. So the question, I had a series of questions uh, involving a, a, the, the core hypothetical was a woman claimed that she had been fired from her job on the basis of, of racial and gender discrimination, which, again, unfortunately, is still all too common. It still exists. And, and it's just it's, it's just terrible that we have to still deal with this. But we do. And so a, a mainstay of federal litigation, incidentally, is civil rights litigation like that. And so I try to you know, hammer that stuff in class and on my exam. This is the kind of thing that you see as a lawyer. And so I said, this woman had been fired, and she th thought that it was be based on um, uh, gender and, 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 and race discrimination. As anyone, you know, even who is, doesn't practice in this area must understand, the hard part about employment discrimination is proving intent. Why was that woman fired? Was she fired because she's not particularly good at her job or was she fired because she's a black woman? That is, of course, a major you know, debate that's not going to be ended you know, here or you know, now or tomorrow. But that's where the, the, the problem is. And so the, one of the most powerful aspects of civil procedure is a process called discovery. I can only in this process in the United States, I can make the other side give me information that hurts them. I can make the other side turn over, in particular, documents and records and a variety of other things. And I can and I can tell I can compel people to tell me stories about things that they've heard that reveal to me what I really want to know. 
And, I, and again, only in this process can I force people to do that under penalty of having the judge put them in jail if they don't follow those rules. This is, as you might imagine, terrifying <laughs> for an employer who's facing an employment discrimination case and knows that there's a smoking gun out there somewhere. Well, no one's going to put in a memo, we fired that person because of her gender and you know race. What might happen, though, is in a closed corridor on a smoke break out in the back sometimes, somebody's, you know, batting around some things and they're like, you know, oh, I, did you see what that blank, blank, and I notice I'm not putting a letter in front of my blanks this time, what that blank, blank did. Well, so I posed in my question, you're the lawyer for this, for this person who thinks that she was fired on the basis of her gender and, and, and race, and, and you have discovered after months of investigation, significant investment of your time, in far northern Wisconsin, you discovered a former manager who also quit after she had heard one of these horrible statements about, you know, this person. And what she had heard was someone saying, and this is what I wrote, quote, you know, something like, we need to get rid of that N space B space. And then I put in parentheses to avoid lawyers wiggling out of this. These are profane epithets for people, uh, you know, African-Americans and women. Okay. That was it. And the question was, you know, can you as the I think the question actually was, if, if the employer's lawyer gets a demand to identify anybody with with information about this case, can that lawyer, you know, conceal the identity of this woman who has heard these horrible things? on the basis that, you know, it's work product that, you know, that person was discovered? The answer is no, for reasons that are exactly why I asked the question, and about three-quarters of the class gets it wrong every single time. Um, that's why I keep asking the question, because I can identify, you know, who gets it right and who gets it wrong. Um, so, so that was the question. And, and, and sort of I, I, I had thought, <laughs> and, and based on, you know, 12 administrations of experience, that I was on, I was on very solid ground. I'm like, on the one hand, acknowledging once again the struggles that one still encounters. I mean, you, you read cases today and you still see people, you know, using this language. I mean, I can't even imagine someone thinking it's okay to say that business out loud. But like, how are you ever going to prove that this is what happened? You have to find someone like this who's willing to tell you, I heard someone go, and in the real world, they're not going to say N space, B space as I did. They're going to bust out with the words, and you as a lawyer are going to have to be prepared for that. So, you know, but I don't need to be egregiously, you know, and gratuitously, you know, challenging to my students. I mean, I realize an end of semester exam is a high stakes, high pressure situation. I'm not about to do as I've heard many other professors around the country do and like bust out with the N word, like in the middle of an exam, you know, that's like, I can appreciate, I can totally appreciate the trauma that that would impose on like literally anyone. If, if, if some professor put that on my exam, I would be like, whoa, you know, totally now not, you know, on, on the same wavelength. But I didn't, I was like, I, I have to make it entirely clear that this evidence is absolutely explosive, it's absolutely vital, and if the other side gets it, we've just lost. <laughs> okay? right. So I wanted to make it as, as, as sharply necessary as possible for this lawyer to come up with some argument that I can somehow conceal this from the other side, and the answer is you can't. And I do that in many of my classes. I try to make the right answer the most difficult answer to come up with by putting the student in the position of the person who doesn't want that to be the answer. And I, and I test you, are you willing to tell your client I, I know you don't want to hear this, but this is the answer, and it is inevitably the answer. And again, about 
25, 30% of the class gets it right. They're like, no, that's not work product, despite how much effort you invested. It is the product of your work, in a sense, but that's not what work product means. And that's, of course, the purpose of the question. Yeah, and anyone who's been to law school has heard the phrase, think like a lawyer. If you haven't been to law school, you've probably heard that phrase. And and that whole idea behind think like a lawyer is you're going to be in a tough situation, and can you reason your way to a a logical conclusion? And that sounds like exactly what you're trying to do with this question is is a tough situation here. What's the the conclusion? And again, you've issued this question 12 times, never had any issues. You said you've had people actually grateful that – that you're posing these types of real world scenarios. So when when were you first aware that someone was taking issue with this question? So my exam was administered like, I don't know, I wanna say early December. And as I said a, a minute ago, right as I was finishing my grades, my dean is like, you know, can we have a conversation with you? about some concerns relating to your classes. And I was like, <laughs> what? Yeah. Concerns relating to my classes? I mean, I, 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 I adore my students. I can't imagine what I could have done, right? And so I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. So like, again, I mean, I, it, it was like three or four days before Christmas, like Jan- December 20th. She goes, she has two concerns. The other one we don't need to worry about. We fixed that. But 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 the, other, the first one was, you know, we've heard that, you know, and this is how it always has come out. This, this irks me. To no end to this day. It, we heard that you used a racial epithet on your exam. I mean, let that sink in. Let any viewer here think for her or himself. What does it mean to say someone used a racial epithet? First of all, it seems to me that you have to sort of be thinking the entire word was there, right. one. And two, that like I had called a student that word, right? <laughs> I was actually using that word as opposed to just making a reference to it. Right. So first of all, this use reference distinction is lost in the entire episode. And second of all, the fact that I abbreviated it by mentioning only the first letter. I mean, so that was my initial reaction. I was like, first of all, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, she goes, first of all, she goes, you know, I know this is going to be upsetting to you because I am, you know, a fairly volatile guy. I'll admit that. But I was like, oh, no, you know, it's not upsetting at all. Thank you for bringing this to my attention. You know, what actually happened, and I can send you the question if you like, is I wrote that, you know, somebody had heard someone saying that the plaintiff here was a, quote, N space, B space, right? That's what I wrote, actual spaces. And I'm waiting for her to be like, oh, yeah, yeah no problem. Right, right. I mean, which she more or less did at the time. I mean, you know, my dean who since moved on, you know, was and is an extremely talented, uh, fairly level-headed person, very good administrator, And so, you know, we kind of strategized about, well, what could we do in light of the fact that apparently some people are expressing that that made them feel uncomfortable. And I'm thinking, I don't really know what that means. My exams are designed to make people uncomfortable. (laughs) So, and and it just, like, to this day, I can't figure out, like, what would make one uncomfortable about seeing N space on the page? Particularly when, as I later learn, the Black Law Students Association put together this petition saying all kinds of things about me and, 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 and educating me in the world about the horrible history of the N-word, calling it that. To which my reaction was twofold again. First of all, I knew all of that already, which is why I abbreviated the word. Second of all, how is what I did at all different from what you just did? They call it the N-word and say I should, you know, have bad things happen to me because I, you know, had the temerity to use the N-word on the exam. 
Meanwhile, they're saying the N-word. I'm like, how are we supposed to refer to it? Would it have been better had I said she heard someone say the N-word? I mean, that would have caused, as I can, you know, as far as I can tell, the exact same reaction because it's no different whatsoever as far as I can tell. Right. I mean, again, I don't know because I'm not in that position. What I do know and what I told my dean, though, is, listen, if anybody felt any kind of way about this, I certainly didn't intend that. This is a total surprise to me. And so maybe, you know, as a sort of, you know, reasonable, responsive measure to remind the students how much I care about them, I could send a message to the class and say, listen, you know, it never would have occurred to me that anybody would have any kind of a negative reaction here. But to the extent that anybody did, I can recognize that I don't know what it's like to be the subject of having words like that actually hurled at me in the real world. And so maybe that brought up some, you know, trauma for someone. If that's the case, then I sincerely regret that. And if you want to talk to me or the dean or anybody else about that, by all means, come let us know, share your story. We'll figure it out. Because by the way, to this point and to this day, no one had ever spoken to me about this other than the dean and eventually this other student who caused all kinds of other problems. So I still don't have any idea who the person or persons were who allegedly experienced so much distress from this question might be. I don't know, you know how they did. I can tell you, by the way, um, that, the, that the scores on that exam were you know, fairly good. So, you know, I strongly suspect that part of what was going on was just people feeling enormously distressed from everything going on, COVID, distance learning, I mean, it being cold in the middle of December, you know, the, the, the uh, goodness knows what, you know, and they were just looking for an outlet for this really significant pent up frustration and there, you know, there it was. Maybe that was just the straw that, you know, broke the camel's back for that person. I don't know. I don't have any idea who that person is, uh, but that person probably did quite well on my exam. Uh, and, and maybe feels like, oh, OK, no big deal now. But well, by that point, the Black Law Students Association had gotten a hold of this thing and, and it was just all downhill from there and there was no stopping it. So what happened from there after you, you meet with the dean, you say, hey, I'll, I'll email yeah. the students to, to try to yep. explain this to them. What was what happened from there? Yeah, I mean, I so I did that. And a couple of people were like, oh, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. And, oh, I remember that question. It was fine. I don't know. And I mean, I, nobody was like, oh, thanks, you know, for saying this. And nobody suggested to me, oh, yeah, gosh, I was the person who felt that way or whatever. I mean, these people don't ever have to be my students again. Right. I don't get people who are assigned to my class. Right? There's no reason for people to be like, oh, my God, I'm terrified of telling Kilborn what I, what I thought of his exam or him, for that matter. You don't ever have to be in my classroom ever again. Uh, but no one was willing to do that. And so so before I know it, once again, without any other person saying anything to me about this other than my dean, my dean emails me. She goes, just want to let you know that there's now a petition sent to Channel 2 News and to the Board of Trustees of Illinois and to the dean and to me and like several other people, right, asking for bad things to happen to me and explaining to me how terrible the N-word is and how, you know, how in the world could I have done this? And I'm like, Okay. <laughs> At first, I'm like, so I don't really understand what's going on here. But 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 I mean, I it, it is sensible, I think, to emphasize yet again. Still, the phrase was being used that a white male professor used the N word on his subpro two exam. That's the headline that went out over and over and over and over. And to the so eventually, by the way, 
Bolsa changes its position, acknowledges that I abbreviated the thing, and then says it doesn't matter, to which, which just begs again the question, if it doesn't matter, then how in the world do you get away with putting the N-word on your petition 14 times? And why can't I have done that? I mean, I, I to this day genuinely do not understand what, if I had known everything that I know now, I could have done differently other than just not asking the question at all, which and this is probably jumping to the end of our conversation, I mean, that's what I'm going to end up having to do now. That's what all of my colleagues who care about their mental health are going to have to do, avoid confronting these topics at all, right? which does absolutely nothing for the cause of social justice, right? This, you, if we're not allowed to have open dialogue about this and have you go, Hey, that made me feel some kind of way. And I go, yo, sorry about that. You know, I didn't mean that. And we go away as friends. We, we can't move forward. Right. And I can only conclude then people who are continuing to wage this campaign don't want to move forward. And I think, you know, if I'm trying to think of this from their perspective, you said you don't understand why they are, can put this word in their petition. You can't use this word. My guess would be they would say, well, you as a white man can't use this word. We as the Black Law Association can use this word. But to and- your point – I mean, if we're, if we're living in a pluralistic society, this word's going to be coming up. And uh, unless we're going to have white courts and black courts, you know, where there's only black lawyers representing black clients and white lawyers representing white clients, uh, you're going to have to find some way for different races to be able to uh, at least address this word. And it, it does it does seem it, it's a very difficult world to navigate if you're going to treat it otherwise. Yeah. Well, so, you know, being, I think, maybe a bit fairer and more diplomatic to to these people who have been attacking me, my sense of the best position that they could take is that it isn't the fact that you put end space, it's that you put it on your exam. This is just the wrong place to be bringing up the topic generally. They want this entirely neutral and sterile situation where A runs into B with her car. And I'm like, well, I could do that. But again, I mean, and again, I don't want to overplay this, but it's worth playing. I'm not just testing your knowledge of whether A runs into B with her car. I'm knowledge. I'm testing. Can you deal with the real world? And and if if you if anyone is going to suffer so much emotional trauma from encountering a particular topic or a particular abbreviated word, that that, as one student famously now said, gives him or her, I think it was her heart palpitations, I would be committing educational malpractice by certifying you to take the bar exam. I mean, I can't let you out into the world knowing that if you encounter this kind of situation, you're going to fade like a violet like that. And many commentators have said that very thing, including Clarence Page in the pages of the uh, you know, New York, of the Chicago Tribune, other you know, African-American commentators. I mean, we just cannot be infantilizing black people in this way. The, the, they are not fading violence. They are perfectly capable of, of, of analyzing the world like rational ad- adults and going, this is not the first time I've heard this word. Um, I, I didn't, I'm not even hearing the word once again. But, you know, and, and by the way, now, what I had hoped, you know, in, in a very distant sense when I first developed the question, again, as I sort of suggested earlier, what I had hoped was, in the middle of this, you know, experience, the student would be like, that's horrifying. But then I have power now to address this in a way that I never could have before. Before I took Professor Kilborn's class, I would have had no way to 
to force this information out into the sunlight where it can be eliminated. Now I do. I mean, I, I would have hoped that someone in that situation who's actually faced that kind of situation would, would feel empowered, not, you know, having whatever, some traumatic reaction. I mean, I, we, we, we just have to go at some point, listen, you know, I, I, while on the one hand, I am not interested at all in making anyone feel uncomfortable gratuitously, I certainly am interested in you know, seeing if you can operate in an adult environment with adult language and adult situations within reason. And N space, B space is not even close to the boundary, I, I, I must say. Right. I mean, the thing that really blows me over and that it seems to me just has to blow the top on this whole thing is, OK, I kind of get why someone would you know, have a negative reaction to N space. But give me a freaking break. B space. I mean, bitch is a word that people can use on TV, right? right. Female dog. I mean, for Christ's sake, people who are claiming to have had, you know, has some negative reaction to, and to suggest that I did something wrong by putting B space. I'm, oh, come on. It just reveals what a ridiculous nonsense, you know, terrible game this is that some people have decided to play. And again, you know, I don't so much fault them. They were under and still are tremendous pressure from all kinds of aspects of, of, of the world that we occupy now. It got way worse when George Floyd was murdered on national television. I mean, I can't even imagine how horrible, you know, folks must have been feeling around mid-January 2021. But to use me and this utterly ridiculous example of something that supposedly was this horrific, I mean, come on. It just such d distracts attention from the hundred other things that are real problems that we lawyers are training ourselves, you know, to resolve. And I know, you know, you want to understandably rationalize this based on the events that are going on in the world at the time, but I've lost count of the number of professors I, I've had on this show who've gone through some sort of similar issue during all sorts yeah. of different time periods. So to me, I'm, I'm able to see this more from the 30,000 feet, and it does seem like a more systemic issue with students. I, I don't know, want, just seeking revenge, they, they get the joy out of that, or they are just generally have a more sensitive disposition. Uh, you know, I, it's hard to say where that originates from, but I have to say, from what I've seen, it has nothing really to do with any sort of external events. Uh, you know. Yeah. I, I had I had Alec Klein on the podcast a few months ago. He was a, a journalism professor at Northwestern, coincidentally same city you're in, and and he faced these this mob attack. People were making false allegations against him. He was all over the news, and you know he said when it happened to him, he it kind of it froze him. You know he, he told me about how he would just spend hours lying on the floor in his living room because he just didn't know what to do. What was your reaction when this started getting into the news and now all these petitions are out there? What what was going on in your head at that point? Yeah, you're gonna make me cry. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I had a very, I tried to have a very different reaction than I normally would. I mean, my normal reaction would be fight, right? I'm not a flight kind of person. I'm like, okay, I, I have to destroy this somehow. But given the gravity of it all and given everything that was going on around me, I just felt, and, and given how isolated we all, we all were at the time, I was just like, let it go. For the first time in your miserable life, Jason, just let it go. I actually took a long walk around my neighborhood and I literally just repeated to myself a hundred times, you're just going to let it go. 
You know, let go of control, let go of your need for control, just let it go. And then I came to my senses. <laughs> and, and so instead of fighting, I was like, how can I fight this in a way without being confrontational? Because I knew that wouldn't serve me well, and I didn't want to send that message to either the students or my university for that matter. And so I felt like, well, the thing that I can do is allow sunlight to be the best disinfectant and get some external disinterested perspective on this. So I sent about 180 emails to, to everybody I could think of who might have a rational perspective on this going, listen, this is what happened to me. First of all, what do you think about it? And second, what do I do? And relatively quickly, in response from, from a, a listserv of other civil procedure professors, someone, several people responded, you need to contact FIRE. And uh, I didn't have any idea who the organization was. I didn't have any idea what they did. But that was one of the best moments of my life. I mean, that, that someone directed me to FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, I mean, was just the best possible thing I could have heard. I went to their website, put my story in there, wondering if anybody would even get back to me. It was one of these weird, you know, just enter your story and click enter kinds of things. But it worked. They got back to me right away. And they said, as you suggested, look, you're not alone by any means. The numbers of these kinds of mob actions against totally innocuous things that professors have done and said has skyrocketed recently. And more importantly, for your purposes, the totally unconstructive reactions of administrators have skyrocketed recently. The problem here is not the students and their reaction. They have been led to this point by lots of leaders and teachers through their whole lives. They've been filled with resentment by all sorts of stories told to them and all kinds of things that they've seen on television, et cetera, et cetera. And they have good reason to be resentful in many cases, I think. The question is being able to pick your target and pick your battle. And so it seems to me one of our jobs as educators and administrators of educators is to be good adult models for these folks and to say, listen, whatever you might feel about this, I'm not making it illegitimate. I get that you feel that way, but let's separate your feeling from your eventual reaction to that feeling. Nobody in administration in the United States today, other than a few isolated examples, is willing to do that and to tell these students this is not the right way of reacting. As I said, you know, in, in one of the many places where I'm quoted on the Internet now, I would hope that we would all agree that if someone inadvertently bumps into you as you walk down the street, the right response, even if you're aggravated by that, is not to jump on the person and beat the shit out of them. That's a socially unconstructive way of responding to things. And I would think that we could all get behind that idea. <laughs> But of course, one of my colleagues at a faculty meeting criticizes me weeks later for telling you know, the black students what they should do being a white professor. I'm like, this doesn't have any earthly thing to do with my gender, or my race, my height, my ear size, the fact that I don't have any hair. It doesn't have anything to do with any of this. Stop distracting from the basic problem here, which is we as a society become so polarized and none of the adults in the room is willing to stand up and be like, stop, right. <laughs> this is not right. So, but once again, back, back to the question, FIRE was willing to try to get that runaway train back on the tracks. And they wrote some letters to the university, which responded in the most utterly irresponsible way, as I could have expected. Uh, and, and, and it really never has gotten any better. I mean, I, 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 to this day, I'm absolutely disgusted that not only my university, but, but it turns out many identified in a recent report issued by FIRE are just unwilling to, to recognize that higher education in general 
But I mean, you've got to acknowledge, particularly graduate education, particularly law graduate education, has got to be an open forum for exchange of ideas. The right response to speech that you don't like is more speech. Explain that you don't like it, explaining why it's a problem, etc. I don't have any problem with anyone's speech. But this utterly ridiculous cancellation reaction that everyone now immediately has is just wrong, it's counterproductive, and it produces things like the Proud Boys. Because they know well, if they're going to fight that way, then we're going to fight this way. And it just polarizes us even further beyond where we're already polarized. Yeah, that's exactly the danger of this this short-term thinking. Like you said, there's going to be a reaction to this action, and it's it's going to be ugly. And the uglier it gets, the more it ratchets up. And yeah. Uh, like you said, you know, I'm I'm getting old enough now. I have friends who are entering academia. They're becoming professors, and they'll send me private messages all the time because they know this is a, a pet cause of mine. They'll say, "You have no idea what it's like in academia now. You you cannot speak up against this one singular narrative." Yeah, and and especially for for younger academics who who might want to say something or take a stand, they say, "I, I have no power to do so. What am I going to do? Am I going to say something and lose my job over this?" Right. And it, it it does. It's it's an issue that. I think starts at such a young age. It starts before college. Now it's it's in in high schools and in in younger kids. And I'm hoping to get someone on from there's there's a group called the Acton Academy, which is trying to start these schools. It's sort of a Montessori style school for very young kids. That's to teach them this idea of anti fragility and to, and to kind of learn to accept the the toughness of the world with with more toughness. Um, but what I mean, what are your thoughts? Is is academia, is higher education, is law school, is it beyond repair at this point? It, what can be done within the academy? Yeah, I mean, you, you, you can't imagine how many times I've asked myself and, and my colleagues that question in recent days. It's, it's, it's absolutely heartbreaking. I mean, what, what attracted me to this job to begin with was the idea that this is an open exchange of ideas this is the place where one learns to actually think like a responsible adult. I mean, watch the TV for half an hour, even the national news, and you'll see people being utterly incapable of thinking through a question. There's no one answer to virtually any non-math-related question on earth. I mean, there's going to be someone else who disagrees with you. And while you have every right to come to a conclusion on whatever basis you want, we have to challenge each other as educated members of society, as educated leaders, to be able to think through an issue, see what it's like to disagree with yourself, and then come to a conclusion on some hopefully neutral basis. You know, because as I was about to say a second ago, right, it's, it's only a matter of time before the political pendulum swings the other way. And these people who are, you know, trying to sell critical race theory, neo-racism, anti-racism, whatever label you want to put on it, those people are going to be under the microscope eventually. And they are in many states already. Just as it is wrong what happened to me, it is absolutely just as wrong for legislators and academic and, and administrators to be stepping into a classroom and going, you can't teach critical race theory. You can't reveal to your students the influences of systemic racism on modern society. You can't do any of it. Why in the world can't I? That's the problem. The problem is, is not so much within, I'm, I think, I hope, it's not so much within the academy. I can deal with disagreement within the academy. What I can't deal with is administrators and legislators sticking their noses in our business. Stay in your lane is what administrators should have posted on their doors. You know, you have a job. Administer the institution. Make sure the lights are on. Make sure the water fountains are running. Make sure we have money. Make sure that nobody is subjected to the, the, the sort of precise forms of invidious discrimination that federal law prohibits. 
but suggesting that having a conversation about traffic stops or any number, number, number of other things it is discrimination because words are violence is just absolute nonsense. And it's absolutely antithetical to everything that higher education stands for. And it will produce educated society that doesn't know how to think for itself. I mean, we, we will become exactly what we fear and hate around the rest of the world. We, we, we love to point fingers and go, oh, the Taliban, they just are doing it wrong. There is very little distinction in the way of thinking between the Taliban and many of the proponents of this or that theory that you're seeing in the United States. Obviously, the subject matter is very different, but the way of thinking, this reductionism, this you know singularity, there's only one right answer and everything else is not only wrong, it's heretical. As Jonathan McWhorter has said nicely, this is a new religion. These people don't get to have a conversation or don't invite a conversation where I can challenge my students and my colleagues. Well, gosh, that's interesting that you think that way. I wouldn't have thought that way. What do you think about this? That is not allowed to happen in a religion. If you say something that's her heretical, you get canceled right, or excommunicated. And so that's what's happening here. And that is utterly antithetical to everything that educated society and higher education has been standing for since the middle of the 1700s, that we're moving away from the Enlightenment, is absolutely devastating for anybody who cares about higher education or ed educated, enlightened society generally. If you want to go back to, you know, delegating the authority to tell people what they're allowed to think, much less say, to the Pope or the leader of Black Lives Matter or whatever other you know self-appointed official you want, that's not a society that I want to live in. It's very much like what we see you know in places like the Taliban, in places like China, where they actually put students in classrooms and instruct them to tell public officials whether their professors are towing the party line. I just read a paper about this yesterday. It's a fantastic paper, by the way. It's on SSRN. Um, These the student informers I was reading this paper, I was reading the reactions of the professors who were interviewed about this going, this is exactly what happened to me. Utterly innocuous comments that are manipulated and misinterpreted into something ugly and nefarious that produce negative career consequences. For this, this is just the absolute devastation of, of educated, you know, capable society. And I just don't think that these people have thought through, where is our society going to go if we follow you? Right. The saddest version I hear about this is when I talk to parents who have college students or recent college graduates and they say, I don't I don't recognize my children. They, they say these, you know, my, my kids come home from school and they tell me about all the yeah. evil that I'm committing and, yes. and how I'm, you know, I'm horrific. And, and you know, my my spouse and I are, are ter terrible and just fundamentally evil. And these are the kids I raised in my house and they're they're coming and sleeping in, in my house and, and telling me all these things. And it really does seem like there's a transformation. It is very Soviet or or Chinese. This the way yeah. that they want to transform the younger generations. But uh, let's try to turn it a little bit more positive. You mentioned fire. You're working with fire. Regular listeners, regular viewers know we love fire here. If there's anyone who is going to save academia, save this principle of, of free speech and academic freedom, I really do believe it's fire. Thefire.org. I they're one of the number one organizations I, I ask people to donate to because I do think they're excellent. <clears throat> Can you tell me about specifically what they've been doing with you? So fire has actually ramped it up one step further for me. And, and, and this is what people really need to understand. When, when they first contacted me, 
My principal concern was, you know, I'm I'm a Northwestern, you know, Lutheran skinflint. And so I was like, I'm not about to spend money out of my own pocket to hire some lawyer to either defend me, frankly, I have tenure after all, much less sue somebody for whatever. You know, so I was like, I'm I'm inclined to just kind of let this go. But I don't know. I'm kind of worried. And they were, you know, because is there a way that you could maybe set me up with some First Amendment lawyer who would like at least talk me through the issues or something? And they were like, as time went on, and as my administration's behavior became more and more obscene, they said, "Listen, we've been developing this idea of a faculty legal defense fund, and while we were going to roll it out a little bit later, we're actually going to have you be the first recipient of the support from this faculty legal defense fund." We've identified a First Amendment lawyer who's actually argued before the Supreme Court, and we're gonna, we've asked him if he would, you know, take your case. And he's saying he thinks it's just as interesting and viable as we do. And so we're actually going to use the money from this foundation. I think it's called the Stanford Foundation or something. Stanton Foundation. I'm sorry, the person who donated to that foundation. If I said your name, because thank you again so much. Anyway, <laughs> uh, but but so this faculty legal defense fund pays a lawyer who's willing, I don't know what the arrangement is, but I mean, is willing to sort of do what needs to be done. Um, and it, that was just the second most fabulous moment in this entire thing. I mean, so fire not only stood behind me with letters and they wrote two letters to UIC laying out chapter and verse, the variety of ways in which UIC's behavior contravenes the United States constitution, the Illinois constitution, freedom of expression, my contractual rights, everything that higher education stands for. And of course, my administration is like, whatever. I mean, they just, they're just, I don't know what, what, what motivates them. But in any event, but when, so when that wasn't enough, fire stepped it up and they're like, look, we're going to assign this lawyer to you. And that gives people like me two important sort of powers. One is I don't have to back down. Right? I don't have to behave in a conciliatory way if I really feel as though my rights are being violated. I can th I can credibly threaten to sue even if I don't end up suing. Right? I can credibly go, I'm calling you on this this time. Right? I'm, you're not going to back me down because you think I don't have any money and I don't want to be confrontational. I don't have to do any of that stuff. I don't have to either spend money or be confrontational. Talk to my lawyer. You can't even imagine how powerful that is. I'm a lawyer. And, and, and I would not have had that power myself without fires backing. So people out there, I keep, I've, I've said this a million times now, I'm fighting this fight now, not for myself. I have tenure. I'm an enormously privileged person. I'm an enormously privileged situation. I'm fighting for the woman in the Hispanic studies department across campus who wants to talk about whatever she wants to talk about, critical race, what have you, I don't, whatever it is, on the right, on the left, in the middle, up, down, in the political spectrum, I don't care, and fire doesn't care. We will support your right to free speech and your right to have an open conversation, no matter what the topic, no matter what the context, because that's what we need. I'm fighting for them. So I was like, OK, I'm going to tell my administration we've got this lawyer. I'm going to make it quite clear what the issues are. And I do think that that had some impact. But, you know, when you're fighting a juggernaut like an enormous state university system as I am, that only goes so far. And so, I mean, we're going to see. Um, I mean, they, they my dean, to her credit, eventually seemed to come around the interim dean now the woman who replaced the one who has moved on I mean, she seemed to and notice my past tense seemed to have come around to a you know more or less acceptable settlement situation which was reported by fire recently several days after that however <laughs> 
She denied me a merit raise, despite the fact that my production was two or three times as much as any other faculty member on the sole basis, and I got her to put this in writing, of this utterly ridiculous nonsense that I've been dealing with the past several months. I mean, it's, it's just unbelievable the, the, the lengths to which these people will go to just continue to persecute you over nothing. Yeah, and there's no attempt at reconciliation. There's no interest in understanding. There's no like, oh, you know, can we sort of move on here? No, it's like over and over and over and over. So once again, my lawyer is still standing there and we sent them a demand letter the other day. We've got a response just yesterday. Oh, we're going to look into it. And I'm like, I hope you enjoy what you find. Because as my lawyer said, I mean, the, the variety of violations of due process and First Amendment and contractual freedom of, you know, academic freedom are just absolutely stunning here. And he made it quite clear. These rights are so crystal clear that if you force us to sue you about them, we're going to ask for punitive damages against the university and every official who was involved here. There's no possible way that anyone involved can go, oh, well, I didn't know. It was unclear. It is 110% crystal clear that this is a totally inappropriate way to be behaving. And somebody's got to stand up to these bullies or they'll continue to come back for our lunch money tomorrow, the next day, and the next day. Once again, I don't care all that much at all about some stupid merit raise. I'm totally privileged and happy and whatever. I don't, I would have just blown it off, but this is no longer about me. It's about every one of my colleagues in the university of Illinois system. And by the way, legislators who have begun to reach out to me going, I saw your story. I'm tired of the universities acting like this. We've got to start examining their appropriation if they continue to violate faculty free speech rights. And I'm working with them with fire now to try to get something going here. We've got to get this out in the open and have the legislature go, we're not going to support a state university system that abuses the right to create a higher education system that we've given you. You can't behave this way. I got tears in my eyes because there's nothing that frustrates me more than seeing powerful people, you know, people are even in more positions of privilege and power than you are, who know what's going on is wrong. They they know it. They will say in private that they know it. Yep. And they're just – they're afraid for whatever reason to stand up and say anything. When when they have the financial freedom to do it, they have the professional freedom, they have the personal freedom to say something. And for whatever reason, just don't have the guts to, yep. to say what they believe is wrong. And and it just – it means so much to me that, that you're willing to do this. Like you said – you're in a, a privileged position, but there, are, and you're, and again, you're not even in the most. I like the, it. Should be the dean. It should be the president of the school. It should be the board of trustees. It should be the people at the very, very top, who are in charge of of these universities and of of bringing these young people from childhood to adulthood and making them thinking people. They're in charge of of these institutions that are that are supposed to be doing this, and they're just for whatever reason unwilling to stand up, and so. Yeah. For people like you and people like Fire, I, I I can't be more grateful. And it does seem like I know you know it seems like you're alone because there, there's one person at one university and one person at one university here and one person at one university there. But again, when you follow someone like Fire and I, when I've been able to talk to so many people, there are so many people around the country who are standing up, and that's what gives me optimism is that it's a small percentage of people, but there are people who have that fight in them, and. Hopefully I can do whatever I can to, to help boost your signal and, and move you forward. But so where you Thank stand you. now is you're still under investigation and no, 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 no. Oh, okay. So, okay. I mean, once again, I mean, that, that's why I say I'm really not fighting about myself anymore. Okay. You know, okay. th- th- this utterly ludicrous investigation of theirs has concluded long ago. Okay. The suspension that you'll see reported on the internet that concluded long ago. They basically admitted almost instantly that that was just an enormous misunderstanding and a huge mistake. And that was lifted. 
but my classes were canceled already. I mean, they, they just overreacted in the most totally outrageous way. But I was like, whatever. You know, I took advantage of it and I tried to, you know, keep working with some students with whom I had been helping and continue to do some scholarship and stuff. And, and so now I'm actually on sabbatical. I mean, it was a long planned sabbatical, which is okay, I guess. I mean, I'm glad to kind of be out of the fray for another semester, but now I will have been out for an entire year. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of looking back to going, looking forward to going back to the classroom in January, but it's going to be a challenge. You know, I, I, I really, really am looking forward to seeing the 99% of students who I know are there. They're excited. They support me. I love them. They love me. But, but now I'm, now I'm paranoid. I mean, I just don't know which one of these people out here, and they can't be identified by any external characteristic, which one of these people is going to decide to be that Chinese student informant right. and, tell my, and tell the Office for Access and Equity that I'm somehow denying them access or equity. I mean, it's just the, the, the contentions are just so utterly, absolutely nonsensical and ludicrous. There's no way you can avoid stepping on some landmine. I mean, they could literally tomorrow decide the word asparagus is offensive right. for some reason. And if you happen to utter the word as asparagus in class, your intention makes no difference whatsoever. We simply have to accept these people's you know, contention. That, oh, my God, how in the world could anyone have been so tone deaf as to use the word asparagus in polite company? And we're expected to, like, lie down on some altar and let them stab our hearts out. I mean, it, I, you, you just can't do it. I mean, at some point, you, if the adults aren't standing up, the kind of smaller adults like me have to go, listen, okay, I'm not putting up with this. I, you know, I have tenure. I could just be like, whatever, and go about my business and be perfectly happy. But I just can't stand this anymore. Someone's got to stand up and be like, the emperor has no clothing on. Right. Stop doing this, please. If you don't, I'll bring more and more and more attention to this with fire's assistance and ultimately with the assistance of the courts, who I presume and hope will apply the absolutely crystal clear First Amendment rules here, as the Supreme Court did in Mahoney just a few weeks ago. I mean, it's unbelievable that people, that this cheerleader has to take this case all the way to the United States Supreme Court to let these administrators understand you cannot be behaving like this. How much clearer can we make it? And, and that's what scares me the most is that right now we still have First Amendment protections. We still have the law on the side of free speech and academic freedom. But now we're seeing this stuff make its way into law school, into the future lawyers, into the future judges, the future legislators. Yep. And that's when, to me, it gets really scary because that law can change very quickly if yep. we allow this entire generation to grow up thinking these these things that they're thinking now. I, You know, what gives me a little bit of hope is – Hearing in private and reading publicly quite a lot of commentary that's quite persuasive that observes, listen, it seems like the entire world is collapsing because you're in the middle of the only house that's collapsing. <laughs> this is not some nationwide movement. It is a movement that has been driven since the 60s by a small cabal of narrow minded, totally misguided people. And they have just made really effective efforts recently to make it seem as though everyone agrees with me. What's wrong with you? No one agrees with them outside of this relatively small, narrow cabal. Maybe they've drawn in some other relatively narrow-minded, misguided people, but it's not nearly this movement that it appears to be. I think the overwhelming majority of my students are just like the overwhelming majority of students everywhere, and they're like, listen, I don't really want this noise. I just want to learn how to be a lawyer and then move on. Right. And, you know, I actually support the people who are getting feisty and wanting to sort of make social change. Go for it. 
You know, eventually, I hope you'll turn your attention to things like, you know, use of police, you know, power, you know, funding the education system, you know, other matters that really do directly impact the lives of, of black people everywhere. You know, right now, focusing attention on some law professor's uses of N blank on an exam is just it just so trivializes the entirety of what this movement stands for. And it just makes, you know, ordinary people go, you people are crazy. Why would I listen to you in any other context? I mean, I, I, I can't help but believe that most of the people, even in the sort of main movement, are having are either having or going to have that reaction. They're like, we're going to totally lose credibility if we keep going way out on the limb. And we, we got to bring this back and go. Black racism exists. It needs to be fought. We need to continue to fight it. We can't declare victory yet. But we've got to pick battles that are real battles and not make up things and be tilting at windmills. Right. And and I, the fire puts out studies all the time of polls of students and of professors. And, and the large majority, like you said, still believe in the ideas of free speech and academic freedom and free exchange of ideas. And it is it's just a matter of people being willing to speak up in support of that because so many people are are in fear of the very small percentage of people who are opposed to those ideas. So again, Professor Jason Kilborn, I've kept you longer than I said. I could talk to you all day, but we, we've already mentioned the fire, thefire.org. Is there anywhere else you want to direct people if they're interested in, in supporting the cause? I would like to take the message, keep the message simple and say fire has done more for me than anything or anyone uh, in this process. They absolutely deserve your support. I read their blog every day now just to understand what's going on. They give it to you straight. Once again, it's worth emphasizing fire is on both sides of the battle here. This is not some conservative rag as, as some ultra liberal leftists have, have recently suggested. Fire will fight for anyone's rights who are uh, abridged, whether you're an ultra conservative or an ultra leftist. It doesn't matter to them. Their point is administrators and legislators need to stay the hell out of the way in, in an open exchange of information. So stick with fire, look at their blog, support them if you can. Great. And if you get in trouble, don't hesitate to reach out. It really is worth it. Great. Professor Jason Coborn, again, thank you so much for your time. I, I wish there were 10,000 professors like you. Uh, keep doing what you're doing. 